folks, this is John Lawrence with Anesthesia Guidebook. This podcast is coming out in September of 2021 and is a super amazing episode because for the next couple of months, it's part of an active study. So the topic of today's show is the perioperative anesthesia implications for patients who use cannabis. My guests are going to introduce the topic and their request for your participation in their study right now. Our names are Elizabeth Bulford and Nicole Kellogg. We're third-year nurse anesthesia trainees conducting our research as part of our doctoral work, North Shore University Health System, School of Nurse Anesthesia, and DePaul University. We're conducting a research study to learn about podcast use in nurse anesthesia for education on a specific topic. The goal of our research is to determine if use of a podcast episode is an effective method for educating the CRNA and SRNAs on anesthetic care of the cannabis user. If you are interested in participating, please pause this podcast episode at the end of the following instructions. There will be a link in the show notes that will take you to a pretest, followed by a podcast episode and a post test. This entire study should take you approximately one hour to complete. At the end of the pretest, please return to this podcast and listen to it in its entirety before completing the post test. Thank you. All right, so don't be lame. Pause this show right now and go take the pretest. The link is in the show notes and on the website at anesthesiaguidebook.com backslash episode 40. It'll take you about two minutes to complete the survey, then come back and get your learn on. I am constantly impressed by the doctoral candidates out there who are putting the time in to generate new research and evidence. Liz and Nicole are going big with their DMP project by not only bringing this exceptional podcast on the anesthesia implications for patients who use cannabis, but they also have done an entire lit review and contextual framework on using podcasts as educational tools for anesthesia providers. That's their real project. So please help them out and take a couple of minutes of your time to fill out the survey. We need the study to have good data and your participation is key to that process. So a bit more on Liz and Nicole, and then we'll get right to the show. Elizabeth Fulford and Nicole Kellogg are third-year anesthesia trainees at the North Shore University Health System School of Nurse Anesthesia. Liz Fulford received her undergraduate degree from Michigan State University in 2011. Prior to anesthesia school, Liz primarily practiced in pediatric ICUs and also adult post-anesthesia care units in several states throughout the country. She's an avid skier and enjoys camping with her husband, Sean, and fur child, Mandy. Nicole Kellogg's nursing background was in rapid response and in a medical cardiac intensive care unit. She lives in Geneva, Illinois with her husband and two young kids and says fulfilling her dream of becoming a CRNA would not be possible without her family. And with that, let's get to the show. Well, Liz and Nicole, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. I'm stoked to have you. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So uh, in summary, I know we have a lot of ground to cover today, but what do you hope listeners will take away from this podcast? So from looking around online on different social media platforms, um, we've kind of noticed there's a lot of misinformation about cannabis and how it actually affects our anesthetic care. Um, So we're hoping to shed some light on um, how cannabis can actually alter or change how we might need to provide our anesthesia care to our patients. That's awesome. Let's talk about the legal status of cannabis right now in the U.S. Where is cannabis legal? So currently, as of the time of this podcast, 33 states, including the District of Columbia, have embraced medical legalization. 
and 11 states support recreational marijuana legalization. So, you know, we're making some headway of the 50 states here. Um, California was the first state to legalize medical marijuana, with Colorado and Washington being the first states to approve legalization of recreational marijuana. It is still illegal federally. The Controlled Substances Act of 1970 clarified uh, that cannabis is considered a Schedule One substance. So Schedule One substances have no accepted medical use in the United States. There's a lack of accepted safety for use under medical supervision, and there's a high potential for abuse. So uh, substances like cannabis, LSD, heroin, ecstasy, those are all your Schedule One drugs. So the FDA has not approved cannabis for the treatment of any disease or condition. And so with the FDA not approving it, then it, it's still considered a Schedule One substance. So it is not legal at the federal level. Do you anticipate that changing over time? I mean, more and more states are approving cannabis for medical and recreational use. Do you think that will change at the federal level at some point? Certainly I do. As I mean, just over the past five, 10 years, it's really snowballed from state to state. I also find it interesting that there are a few different drugs that are cannabinoids or cannabis derived drugs that have been approved by the FDA for treatment of various syndromes or chemotherapy induced nausea, vomiting, anorexia, weight loss in patients with AIDS Medical cannabis has also been beneficial for other conditions like epilepsy, neuropathic pain, spasticity, MS, cancer. I think as more research comes out on the benefits of these, we will definitely see uh, more states causing it to be legal and then federal level as well. Canada, it's now legal in Canada as well. So, you know, America's had. America's had. (laughs) Nationwide throughout Canada. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Let's talk a little bit more about how people are using cannabis. Uh, So do you have data on rates of use or who's using cannabis in the States or internationally? Yes. So the cannabis use stats vary from study to study. Um, Depends on what you're reading. But according to the National Institute of Health, cannabis use in 2015 to 2016 increased from 4.1% of the population to 9.5% of the population. That's in one year alone. It's estimated that 10 to 20% of patients between the ages of 18 and 25 are regularly using cannabis. And it still remains the most commonly used illicit drug in the United States. Overall, it's estimated that 22 million Americans over the age of 12 are using cannabis each year. So just with those stats alone, it's, you know, we understand that more and more of our patients are using cannabis, more and more are willing to admit that they use it. And the likelihood that they will be truthful with us in our pre-op interview is increasing as well. Interesting. So let's talk about the pharmacology of cannabis. It's a drug with specific effects and receptors in the body. Can you start off with just like some broad strokes on the pharmacology of cannabis? Yeah, absolutely. So marijuana is actually extracted from the dried leaves of the plant C. stevia, and it contains approximately 450 distinct compounds, including 60 cannabinoids. The two main cannabinoids in marijuana are THC and cannabidiol. So THC is typically present in the highest concentration, and this actually can change based on growing conditions. THC is primarily responsible for the psychoactive effects of cannabis, and therefore the THC concentration is actually directly related to the potency and the efficacy. 
CBD, interestingly, does attenuate THC psychoactive effects. So again, THC is responsible for the psychoactive effects and CBD is not. Cannabinoids act primarily via inhibition of adenyl cyclase G protein coupled receptors. <laughs> that isn't a triggering word. I don't know what it is. Yeah, exactly. Um, All the CRNAs are going, what? And the students are like, you know, spazzing know. out. <laughs> We're about yeah. to unpack this a little bit more. Um, so CB1 receptors are primarily expressed presynaptically in peripheral nerves, the spinal cord, basal ganglia, cerebellum, hippocampus, and other association cortexes, but less so in the brainstem. This distribution of CB1 receptors may actually account for the effects of cannabis on nociception, anxiolysis, memory, cognition, emotion, and even movement. But interestingly, it's relatively sparing for respiratory depression. CB1 receptors are actually found in low levels in the heart, blood vessels, and peripheral autonomic neurons, and in other peripheral locations. We're learning more and more about these receptors as more research is coming out. Activation of CB1 receptors actually results in inhibition of GABA, norepinephrine, dopamine, serotonin, and acetylcholine release. And there's actually indirect modulation of several other neuronal receptors, including opioid and NDMA receptors. The other large cannabinoid receptor is called CB2. These are expressed primarily in immune and hematopoietic systems, and they have been shown to have inhibitory effects on inflammation, immune function, and nociception. These CB2 receptors are actually of great interest for pharmacological development. There was actually a nice article in the June 2021 AANA journal that kind of discusses some of this too, and about how we can maybe use these receptors to harness their power for pharmacological benefit. Okay, cool. Yeah. 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 We can definitely link to that in the show notes, that and any of the other research that you've come across in your lit review. Absolutely. Wonderful. Um, So interestingly, THC is a partial weak agonist at both receptors, but some synthetic cannabinoids are actually full agonists at these receptors. So thinking about like spice, other things like that, K2, While some may be agonists at CB1 and CB2, like THC, other cannabinoids can act as antagonists or inverse agonists at both receptors. So it kind of gets a little complicated depending on the substance that's being used. Moving on to some pharmacokinetic information. The pharmacokinetics of THC can actually be difficult to predict because any one delivered dose can be dependent on several variables including THC concentration of the actual product, the route of delivery, and the metabolism and elimination of the specific cannabinoid that's being used. Cannabinoids are highly lipid soluble, so there's significant redistribution and accumulation that occurs once it's ingested. There are two main routes that people tend to use cannabis, so it's inhaled or it's orally ingested. So when it is inhaled, THC and other cannabinoids are rapidly absorbed to the lungs, and there's peak effect within 15 minutes. Interestingly, the peak effect of these can occur for a persistent dose-dependent four hours. With oral ingestion, it's actually much slower. So the peak is in 15 to 90 minutes, but it has a much longer duration of action, approximately five to six hours. When it's orally ingested, there's also rapid first pass hepatic metabolism that results in a blood concentration that's about 25% less of what occurs when it's smoked. 
Regardless of what method is used to consume cannabis, the cognitive and psychomotor effects can actually be present for up to 24 hours. Plasma half-life of THC ranges from 20 to 30 hours, but the tissue half-life can be as long as 30 days, depending on the frequency and chronicity of use. And this is due to fat accumulation. Because of this, the degree of intoxication actually cannot be predicted by laboratory studies, especially if somebody is a chronic user. Because of delayed elimination, drug interactions can also occur up to five days after exposure. So something interesting to keep in mind when we have patients coming in who are chronic cannabis users. Nodding to metabolism and elimination, cannabis is metabolized in the liver, but the heart and lungs are also contribute to a degree. THC has over 100 psychoactive and non-psychoactive metabolites, and elimination primarily occurs via the urine, bile, and the feces. That's interesting. So thanks for that rundown. I do want to cycle back and just clarify for folks. So just hit on THC and CBD a little bit. Some people, I think, believe that if you know a patient is using CBD oils, that they may have these psychoactive elements, you know, because it's cannabis. But can you kind of tease that out again, or just clarify that again for listeners the difference between THC and CBD? Sure. Um, THC and CBD are both cannabinoids. THC is the cannabinoid that is primarily responsible for the psychoactive effects of a cannabis product. CBD is a cannabinoid as well, but it is not responsible for any of the psychoactive effects. My understanding, CBD products that are out in the market can have varying concentrations of THC. So depending on the product, the CBD product that a patient is using, there could be varying levels of THC in it. I believe that the lowest concentrations are somewhere around like 118th or 120th. And technically, you shouldn't have any effects from the THC in a CBD product that has like a low concentration. And why are people using CBD products? What are the primary reasons that people are reaching for that over the psychoactive effects of a a high concentration of THC in cannabis? Sure. As we discussed with CB1 and CB2 receptors, there can actually be some good effects on pain relief. And I find a lot of people are using CBD products as a means to help with chronic pain. We didn't find a ton of research on this right now. Uh, Most of the articles that we found kind of began around like 2018. And I believe some of this is because it's still a schedule one substance. Mm -hmm. So I think the more that marijuana starts to become legalized, we are going to see more and more research about some of these things. Even again, nodding to that AANA article, they're discussing making some drugs that actually target maybe CB2 receptors because it can help with chronic pain and things like that. Chronic pain, neuropathic pain, anxiety, Mm -hmm. sleep, um, and just in my own practice. That's what I've Mm -hmm. been very, you know, very much reported the patients that say that they do use CBD mm-hmm. products. It's usually for those. Right. Reasons. Right. Yeah. I think that we're at a really interesting point in time with cannabis in general as more and more states end up legalizing cannabis products for medicinal use as well as recreational use. And then kind of hanging on that linchpin of like it, it being federally still banned. I think as these regulations begin to shift, 
the research and development and, and also like the the precision of measuring concentrations of THC, uh, whether it's strictly THC products or in CBD oils, I think all of this is going to become more advanced. Our, our knowledge base, you know, we, I, I would say we've not arrived right in, in our understanding of cannabis and how it can be used for medicinal uses. And I think that, you know, maybe by the time that the three of us are ending our anesthesia careers, you know, 20, 30 years from now, it may be really common for people to be you know, using cannabis products perioperatively for whether it's chronic pain or anti-anxiety or, you know, a, a range of uses. So, so I'm interesting part of history right now to be a part of. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's one of the reasons I was stoked about your project and I'm very interested to kind of move forward through the rest of what you've got for us today. And because I think this is going to be part of anesthesia providers practice for a long time to come. So uh, so again, I'm stoked to be on the show with you today. So, Thank so you. speaking of that, let's let's hit on some of the normal physiologic effects of cannabis. So we've talked about kind of the pharmacology of cannabis, but let's shift gears in in terms of how cannabis affects different systems within the body. All right. So starting with our cardiovascular system, we understand that the CV effects are mainly mediated by CB1 receptor stimulation. This leads to activation of the sympathetic nervous system and inhibition of the parasympathetic nervous system. We know that after 30 minutes of exposure, norepinephrine levels peak and can stay elevated for up to two hours after cessation. And then going along with this, this initial tachycardia that we often observe with initial use of cannabis Various clinical studies have shown that this may be mediated by adrenal release of epinephrine on your beta receptors, and then that parasympathetic inhibition. We know this also because studies have shown that pretreatment with propranolol effectively blocks this increase in heart rate. So if you were to take propranolol, use cannabis, um, it would block that expected increase in your heart rate. There's also a dose-dependent increase in systolic blood pressure and heart rate in naive cannabis users immediately after they start to smoke. Once THC reaches its peak plasma concentration, there may be as much as a 20 to 100% increase in your systolic blood pressure. And this can last up to an hour after you stop smoking. Within the first hour of smoking, there's a five-fold increased risk of MI. And after that first hour, the risk rapidly decreases. So, you know, this is important to remember later when you have that patient who comes in and said, yeah, I smoked before I came in. This elevated risk is thought to be due to a combo of the tachycardia and peripheral vasodilation. So because of those, we'd see this compensatory orthostatic hypotension, increase in cardiac output, increase in oxygen demand, increase in cardiac workload. So, you know, all those sequelae can feed into the development of an MI from there. Yeah. And just to highlight that, I think that's a remarkable statistic. So you said that there's a five-fold increase of myocardial infarction or heart attack within the first hour of cannabis use. I think that's an important stat for the anesthesia providers out there, certainly perioperatively, but also just for your friends and family. If you're someone who, you know, or your family members or friends, uh, you know, you're traveling to a state where cannabis is legalized for recreational use, and you've got other cardiovascular risk factors in terms of hypertension, obesity, prior, you know, coronary artery disease, you've got to remember that cannabis is not a a benign product that it may put you at risk for heart attack, which is, which is really interesting to think about. Yes, certainly. And going along with this ischemic stroke is the most common vascular side effect of cannabis. 
So there's a 2.3 to 2.9 fold increased risk of CBA in young cannabis smokers as compared to tobacco smoking. That's interesting. Yeah. Again, just one of the other kind of shocking risk factors with cannabis use. So what else have you found in terms of the effects of cannabis on systems? Just going more along with the stroke risk, cannabis-induced stroke is tied to cerebral vasospathum and atherosclerosis. So if you already have neurologic issues, you, you know, say you have TIAs, all of that, and then you're smoking cannabis, your risk is just exponentially increasing there. And then just more about the heart, as you increase your dose, there's a stronger parasympathetic response. So then you're seeing the bradycardia and hypotension. So initially you're seeing the tachycardia and hypertension. And then the more you use it, your parasympathetic system goes into overdrive and um, you're seeing the bradycardia and hypotension. And what's dangerous about this, especially perioperatively, is that at the same time with repeated cannabis use, you're deregulating your baroreceptors. So when you're bradycardic and hypotensive, and then your baroreceptors aren't working the way that they're supposed to, you can't compensate for that. And so cardiac arrest can definitely occur, especially in combination with your anesthetics. Another important thing to be on the lookout for, for your chronic cannabis users intra-op is uh, cardiovascular issues and arrhythmias. It's been linked to the development of AFib, which is the most common arrhythmia uh, associated with cannabis, atrial flutter, sinus bradycardia, AV block. Males between the ages of 45 and 64 have been identified to be at a higher risk of these arrhythmias. So this is a, a bit of a rundown on the cardiovascular risk factors. I mean, how does this shape our decision-making around managing these patients perioperatively? So thinking about our surgical stress response, our baseline surgical stress response, we know that that causes sympathetic nervous system stimulation. So if you have a patient who is a chronic cannabis user, or if they've used it recently, you can see synergistic cardiovascular effects with that surgical stress. Some research has supported canceling general and regional anesthesia for elective surgery for up to 72 hours after the last exposure to cannabis. I find that interesting. I have not seen this in my uh, somewhat limited practice. Maybe you have. I mean, I think there would definitely be a difference between I smoked before I came in and I smoke in general. But I think as literature develops and we see more, we may see some guidelines coming out. Yeah, I think that uh, it's variable, you know, depending upon the anesthesia provider and their comfort level in terms of what I've seen in, in my own practice. And also just the uh, clarity with which patients report their cannabis use. You know, I think a lot of people will just say that they don't use out of fear of repercussions or, you know, if you ask them if they smoke, they say no. But if you drill down on that and say, do you use cannabis of any kind? They're like, well, yeah, I, I vape cannabis. And, you know, they may not conflate vaping cannabis or THC products with smoking or vaping and smoking, or, or they may just think, yeah, I smoke marijuana joints, but that's not smoking cigarettes, right? So their patients may not be super accurate in how they report their cannabis use. But I would say in terms of canceling surgery, I don't often see surgery being canceled for cannabis use unless the patient is showing signs that maybe would put them at risk. So if they're exceptionally hypertensive or tachycardic or maybe acutely intoxicated in pre-op, then those may be red flags that hit anesthesia providers and, and trigger, you know, maybe we should postpone this surgery. 
Certainly. So what else have you got for us on physiologic effects? Interestingly, the respiratory effects are kind of mediated by CB1 receptors. And it, research has shown that cannabis actually causes bronchodilation and decreased airway resistance, again, mediated by those CB1 receptors. However, smoking cannabis still causes similar airway hyperreactivity that's seen with tobacco smoking. Unlike cigarettes, cannabis cigarettes or joints tend to be unfiltered in nature. And because of this, there's actually a threefold increased risk of tar inhalation and one-third more tar deposition in the respiratory tract as compared to a traditional cigarette. Also, the tar produced by cannabis contains a greater concentration of two common carcinogens. This actually means that cannabis can play a significant role in the development of lung cancer, especially when it's used chronically. I did find one pooled analysis that did show that infrequent smoking did not confer a greater risk of lung cancer, though. Infrequent. Infrequent. Interesting. It did not say what infrequent meant, but infrequent use does not confer a greater risk of lung cancer. Well, I I do think it's interesting just to jump in. You know, I think there's a common misperception that smoking cannabis is not harmful. Again, you know, I mean, if you listen to a lot of reggae music, they'll extol the benefits of, you know, ganja or marijuana as for its medicinal uses. But if you're smoking a substance, you're still smoking a substance and it's getting into your lungs and it's damaging lung tissue in an array of ways. So I think, again, this is great information that we're able to get out to folks that it's not a benign product, depending on how you're using it. So when people are smoking, um, we know that individuals like to take larger breaths and hold it for longer periods of time, and that helps maximize THC absorption. However, this practice can result in five times the amount of carboxyhemoglobin levels as compared to a regular tobacco smoker. So thinking back to our physiology classes and carboxyhemoglobin, this causes a left shift of the carboxyhemoglobin curve left latches. So this means less O2 to our tissues. Also due to the relatively high amount of carbon monoxide in marijuana, as opposed to tobacco cigarettes, chronic marijuana smokers can actually be at higher risk of atheromatous disease. Just another thing to keep in mind when you're taking care of a patient who really chronically smokes like daily smokers. One study also estimated that three to four cannabis cigarettes daily is equivalent to about 20 tobacco cigarettes in terms of bronchial tissue damage. In fact, cannabis actually burns at a higher temperature than tobacco does, and it can actually be more irritating to the airways. This is caused from chemoreceptor and thermoreceptor stimulation when it's inhaled. This can lead to laryngospasm especially during periods of lowered sensory afferent neuron threshold potentials. And for us, that means light anesthesia. So somebody who smokes a lot of cannabis can actually be at very high increased risk of having laryngospasm. So just something to keep in mind. Heavy cannabis smoking can also lead to goblet cell hyperplasia and increased secretions, loss of ciliated epithelium, uvular edema, and it increases the risk of laryngospasm like we've already discussed. So for us as anesthesia providers, these perioperative respiratory events such as reintubation, hypoventilation, hypoxemia, laryngospasm, bronchospasm, and aspiration, it can be up to 70% more prevalent in smokers. 
That's remarkable. Okay. So this is a ton of negative effects on the respiratory system from smoking cannabis. I've done podcasts before on vaping THC and nicotine products, which also come with their own set of risk factors. So as anesthesia providers, what are some of the considerations? How can we, how can we best tailor our approach to them? Sure. It's pretty similar to caring for somebody who's a tobacco smoker, but just keeping in mind that because it burns at a higher temperature, we can have a lot more airway irritation and uvular edema. Some of the things that we can do to help our patients is considering albuterol, corticosteroids, and laryngeal topical anesthesia. It can help suppress cough and airway hyperreactivity. I did find some information on steroid recommendations uh, just to help reduce uvular edema. One study did recommend our traditional four to eight milligram dose of dexamethasone just to help with that. And then another I found discussed at the first signs of any type of airway obstruction to give one mg per kilo of dexamethasone every six to 12 hours over the course of one to two days. Another thing to keep in mind, if you're going to be using a volatile anesthetic, sevoflurane is going to be your best choice because it's less pungent and is associated with less coughing than the other volatile anesthetics. And then one last bullet point here for... Uh, the respiratory system, because there is an increased risk of laryngospasm associated with smoking cannabis, you're going to need a deeper level of anesthesia before you can safely manage a patient's airway. Yeah, interesting. That's a great point. So can you speak a little bit to the risk profile of smoking, vaping, and ingestion of cannabis for patients? I mean, we've talked about the cardiovascular risk, the respiratory risk factors. Some of those are kind of common sense for anesthesia providers in terms of thinking about someone who's smoking cannabis in a similar way to someone who smokes cigarettes. But is there a risk profile difference depending on how you are using cannabis, whether you're smoking, vaping, or ingesting cannabis? Sure. I really didn't find much in the literature that's delineating between the three different methods that people routinely consume cannabis. They're all going to activate similar receptors depending on the type of product as we discussed CB1 and CB2. I will say a lot of the negative effects on the lungs is obviously going to be mediated by smoking cannabis. I saw one study that mentioned that smoking cannabis, especially an unfiltered joint, is kind of like standing in a forest fire and inhaling the particular matter. So just something to keep in mind. You know, I find for us as anesthesia providers, the CV effects and the respiratory effects can be something that we really need to keep in mind to safely deliver an anesthetic to somebody who is chronically using cannabis. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. You know, sometimes depending on the patient, part of my pre-op kind of chat with patients, if they are a heavy cannabis smoker or vapor, I will talk to them about that. I will kind of do a little PSA pitch, a little public health pitch to say, hey, you know, if you can shift gears away from smoking or vaping, you will save your lungs from some of the respiratory harm from cannabis and, you know, move over to some sort of ingested product. It, it might help protect your lungs a little bit more. So interesting. Um, so let, let's shift gears and talk a little bit about uh, some of the common anesthesia medications like volatile anesthetics, opioids, neuromuscular blockers, and how cannabis interacts with some of these medications. Sure. So starting with volatile anesthetics, a lot of the literature is supporting that there is an increased 
volatile anesthetic use and chronic cannabis users. So one retrospective study looking at pre-op cannabis users and the impact of intra-op anesthetic delivery found that the average total volume of sevoflurane was significantly higher. So cannabis users average 37 milliliters of SIVO use versus non-smokers who use 25 mLs of SIVO for the same procedure. Now, I'm sure you're like me, 37 to 25 of mLs of SIVO, I don't, it, it doesn't mean anything to me. I mean, it, it, you know, you've got a little <laughs> indicator there of how much is left, um, but we can appreciate that there is, a, you know, quite a bit of difference between the two. I imagine that there will be more studies coming out in the future that are looking at MAC of SIVO and different gases between the differences between cannabis users and non-users. Great. And what about other medications that we might be giving and how cannabis interacts with those? Sure. So IV anesthetics. So the, one of the major mechanisms shared by general anesthetics in endocannabinoids is the modulation of GABA. So it's not unusual to see interactions between GABA drugs and endocannabinoids. So in chronic marijuana users, increased doses of propofol may be required for um, loss of consciousness, jaw relaxation, and suppression of the airway reflex. There was a study out of Colorado that analyzed the dosages of common anesthetic drugs like fentanyl, versed, propofol, uh, as required for uh, an endoscopy procedure, you know, cannabis users versus non-cannabis users. And cannabis users required 14% more fentanyl, 19% more versed, and 220.5% more propofol as compared to non-smokers. That's a lot. That is astronomical. You know, overall, they requ- they require more sedatives, more volatiles as compared to non-smokers. And you know, we need to consider this for all of our patients. You know, can, if you're doing offsite anesthesia, you got to bring your drug cart or drug tray. Um, or if you're, you know, at a surgery center or something, and your resources are limited, I mean, 220 percent more propofol. That's a lot more propofol that you're going to need. And if your case is long, you're, you know, you need to anticipate this ahead of time. You don't want to get into the weeds and realize you can't get up. Yeah, absolutely. So you think about and kind of linking some of the concepts you've put out there. So double the dose of propofol for an endoscopic procedure is what you found in one of these studies for cannabis users that coupled with the deleterious effects on the respiratory system in particular that cannabis puts cannabis smoking puts people at such a higher increased risk of laryngospasm. And in a lot of endoscopic procedures, you know, we're not intubating these folks. We're doing EGDs and colonoscopies with Maybe, maybe an LMA, uh, usually just some sort of a, a face mask oxygen device. So, so those are big risk factors. Those are, that, that's, a, that's a substantial change to your anesthesia practice when you're dealing with a chronic cannabis smoker for these procedures than your typical patient who doesn't use. Certainly. And if you put all the pieces together too, so you've got, you're doing an EGD for a patient who's a cannabis user. So you need 220% more propofol to get them as deep as you'd like and to make sure that, you know, they're not going to have the laryngospasm or, you know, the respiratory effects from the endoscopy, but then 220% more propofol of an effect on your body. Like now you're dealing with other problems. So considering is this safe to perform this procedure on this patient? Lots to consider here. Indeed. So let's shift gears and talk about how we can tailor our pain management for folks who are chronic cannabis users. Sure, absolutely. As we kind of discussed earlier, I think 
there's a general consensus out there that, you know, oh, cannabis is great for pain management, and it absolutely can be. Um, cannabinoids have certainly been shown to be efficacious in the treatment of chronic neuropathic pain and cancer-related pain. However, cannabis appears to lower the pain threshold for surgical patients in the acute pain phase, resulting in increased pain medication requirements in the post-operative period. So kind of super interesting, kind of opposite, I think, of what we are made to believe, but the literature is consistently showing this. So high-dose cannabis use is associated with increased post-operative pain, requiring additional doses of analgesics and higher post-operative pain scores as compared to non-users in like the immediate post-operative period. I did find one study that showed that chronic cannabis users actually had a narcotic requirement that was twice that of the average patient of the same height and weight each day over the course of a two-day post-operative period for the same procedure. I also found another multi-institutional pilot study that found that marijuana use significantly affected acute pain and management, and again, resulted in increased consumption of opioid analgesics and a greater self-reported pain score following a traumatic injury. Just to kind of put a number on this, there was another study that showed that uh, the opioid consumption was approximately 25 to 37% increased in marijuana users versus non-cannabis users. And do you think that this is because cannabis is doing something with receptors within the body in terms of, you know, creating a state where people need more opioids and analgesics? Or do these people have chronic pain syndromes and they're using cannabis to try to treat that chronic pain? I mean, did the literature tease that out at all in terms of the cohorts and and the kind of like uh, entry level pathophysiology that these patients were experiencing? You know, I really didn't see much of that in the literature. It was just kind of a comparison between the two. So I actually find this really interesting as well. And I am not 100% positive on the answer to that. But I'm sure as more research comes out, we're going to learn a lot more about this. All I really noticed in a lot of these studies is that there just is a difference. So chronic cannabis smokers do require more rescue pain medications in PACU and that they do typically report higher pain scores. I find this really interesting as well, just because, you know, cannabis can be really touted as a great way to control chronic pain, but not so much for our acute surgical pain. Right. I mean, another thing to consider too, I mean, you think about your patient who is on opioids chronically, we instruct them to take it as they would take it the morning of surgery. And then we give what we give, but with cannabis, you know, we're telling them, don't do that. Don't do that especially the day of surgery. So, you know, their threshold may be lower because they're not getting that baseline that they normally have. So um, that's just speculation. I don't have a study to back that up. No, that's a great great question. And and those are the kinds of questions that are being asked right now with medications like buprenorphine. And I Mm -hmm. recently had a podcast on that, but you know, whether to continue that medication perioperatively or discontinue it and, and how to approach pain management with patients who have complex pain syndromes and also who are using various forms of pharmacology in their life at baseline, whether it's recreational drugs, prescribed opioids, things like cannabis, things like alcohol even, and how these influence our interactions with these patients. It's definitely, I mean, those are those are real questions that anesthesia providers have to work through and, and solve. And the literature base on many of these questions is still evolving. 
So let's keep going with some of the anesthesia implications in terms of the other medications that we would use in anesthesia and how cannabis may affect those. So what else do you have for us? Sure. Um, The other medication group that popped up a couple of times in the literature was neuromuscular blocking agents. So CB1 receptors are actually located at the neuromuscular junction in striated peripheral muscle and in smooth intestinal muscle. CB1 agonists mediate inhibition of acetylcholine through activation of N3 muscarinic receptors. So this means that activation of these receptors can actually decrease the release of acetylcholine, and they can also decrease the frequency and amplitude of motor end plate potentials. So theoretically, THC, since it depletes acetylcholine stores and exerts an anticholinergic effect, could potentiate non-depolarizing muscle relaxants. However, um, this effect has really only been demonstrated in non-mammalian subjects and not necessarily in humans. So at this point, it's really more of like a theoretical concept that like THC consumption could affect our NMBA, specifically non-depolarizers. So the literature just recommends monitoring twitches and using your non-depolarizings accordingly to your twitch monitoring. Excellent. Which is par for the course, standard, like best practice. Mm -hmm. You should be using some sort of a twitch monitor if you're using paralytics, if not quantitative analysis of motor function, something like the train of four watch or something, but at least you should be doing train of four with a basic subjective assessment, like a twitch monitor baseline best practice. So uh, what else do you want to chat with us? You've got some interesting information in terms of how cannabis affects the gastrointestinal tract in in a number of ways. Yeah. So THC consumption reduces your gastric emptying time for an average of 30 minutes to two hours. So these patients are at a high risk of aspiration during airway instrumentation. So you'll want to RSI these patients, especially with acute exposure. So your trauma coming in and you suspect that they were using cannabis, then you definitely want to RSI. But just in general, these patients should be RSI. Uh, Another topic that a hot topic that we've seen on social media among anesthesia providers is cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. So this is a condition characterized by a cyclic pattern of severe nausea and vomiting and abdominal pain in the setting of chronic cannabis use. So the mechanism of this is still unknown, but it's likely mediated by the CB1 receptor activity in the GI tract or enteric nervous system. Chronic cannabis use can lead to downregulation of antiemetic CB1 receptors in the brain. So this causes THC to change from an agonist of these receptors to an antagonist. And then you're getting the nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain. It's been also theorized that reduced CB1 receptors can produce gastroparesis and then trigger these episodes of hyperemesis. Um, I know that a question that has come out that I've seen in um, among the anesthesia community is if you have a patient who has a history of this hyperemesis syndrome, are they at an increased risk of post-op nausea and vomiting? And research has not supported that correlation. So just because a patient has a history of this hyperemesis syndrome does not make them at a higher risk of PONV. Interesting. Given these effects on the gastrointestinal system, how should anesthesia providers be tailoring their practice for patients that are using cannabis? Sure. So you want to use your uh, aspiration prophylaxis, your pre-op meds. So your 
H2 antagonists, your proton pump inhibitors, your non-particulate antacids at baseline. And also if you plan to do an RSI. Um, yeah, I think that's about it. Okay. Interesting. So anything else that you want to talk about in terms of the physiologic effects of cannabis? Sure. I'm not sure if you use a BIS monitor or I know that uh, availability is varying um, institution to institution, but a study has shown that cannabinoids can cause an elevation in your EEG activity. So it would make your BIS an unreliable marker of anesthetic depth. So if you're using that, um, routinely to monitor your anesthetic depth. If you have a patient who is chronically using cannabis, just to keep in mind that this may not be as accurate as you would like it to be. Yeah, that's a great point. I think understanding the effects of things like cannabis or ketamine or other medications and how they change biz readings will help anesthesia providers use the equipment appropriately, trend the numbers appropriately, and of course, take the best care of their patients that they can. Uh, anything else that you want to say before we start wrapping up? Um, I would say that it is important for an anesthesia provider to understand the signs and symptoms of an acute cannabis user. You know, this may not be something that you're familiar with, but it certainly should be something in the back of your head when you're assessing your patients. So the, as we talked about the tachycardia, the labile blood pressure may also, the patient may complain of a headache. You may observe some euphoria, dysphoria, depression, anxiety, panic, psychosis, which is rare. They may have poor memory, decreased motivation with chronic use. So just keep those in the back of your head for your pre-ops. Excellent. Liz and Nicole, we've covered a lot of ground, but if you were to sound off on maybe your your top tips for anesthesia providers to keep in mind, what do you want them to carry with them the next time they're at work and they're in pre-op and they're working with someone who's a cannabis user? What are the things that you really want to sear in their memory in terms of how to take care of these patients and keep them safe perioperatively? Sure. Um, I think some of the biggest things is just to understand the risks associated with when the last time was smoked and the chronicity of use. Um, I think those are the two biggest things that can really affect our anesthetics, specifically cardiovascular wise and respiratory systems. If somebody is just like a rare user admits to maybe some cannabis use, but it's been a while, it's probably not really going to affect your anesthetic much. But somebody who admits to smoking weekly, daily, things like that, that's when your alarm bell should really be going off. And um, thinking about some of the cardiovascular effects, especially, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I had somebody come in that had smoked an hour prior to coming in. They said that they smoked in the car outside the hospital to help them relax. So again, like we discussed, fivefold increased risk of myocardial infarction in like healthy young men within that first hour of having cannabis. So just something to keep in mind about activation of the sympathetic nervous system. And then somebody who is chronically smoking is obviously going to have more airway irritation. And again, like Nicole discussed earlier, increased anesthetic use. So again, somebody who is using cannabis products a lot, like you're going to expect to need more products to maintain an adequate level of anesthesia to safely implement an airway. So just be prepared for that. Have your toolbox ready, have what you need there and available so you can provide the safest care for your patients. And then um, just going along with meds, your aspiration prophylaxis and RSI. Mm -hmm. 
And then don't be surprised if after the procedure, somebody who's chronically using cannabis might require more rescue doses of opioids. It's not unusual. The literature is continually supporting that. That's awesome. Well, uh, Nicole, Liz, thank you so much. I think this was packed with super useful information for anesthesia providers. I would highly encourage folks to you know take the post-test. Hopefully, you've already taken the pre-test and give these anesthesia providers some really good data for their study. And just want to say thank you again so much for coming on the show to share your knowledge and your passion for education for anesthesia providers. And I wish you the best wrapping up this project for your DNP degree. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. much. Thanks for having us. And thanks for partnering with us on this. Um, we wouldn't be able to do it without you. Just want to say thank you to all the listeners out mm-hmm. there. I hope you found this podcast educational. If you have the time, please complete the survey for us. We're hoping to use the data from this procedure to actually bring light uh, education with podcasts for CRNAs and SRNAs. There's currently no literature out there yet. So we would greatly appreciate your help in making this study robust. Yeah, that's awesome. It sounds like you are pretty motivated to continue this through to publication in terms of actually um, some legitimate data on the podcast used for nurse anesthetists. That's the hope. Yep. Help us be a part of history and be a part of history yourself on this topic by participating in our study. So team, remember, these women are pushing the field forward with their study on the power of podcasts for educating SRNAs and CRNAs. Make their day, make my day by taking a couple of minutes to complete the post-test for their study. I'll cycle back and let you know when their paper is published so you can check it out. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.